0: Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories.
1: I'm back in the shed. So I took some time away to do some normal things like eating and sleeping and actually talking to my family. But this is a story that it's really hard to switch off from think about it every single day and I know that a lot of you have been thinking about it too. So this bonus episode is a chance for us to dig a little deeper. We'll explore some more of your theories. We'll re-examine some of the stranger parts of the case. I'll be putting your questions to Shirley and I can promise you some big new revelations. But I want to start by talking about The noises.
0: Couldn't be an animal. Like what? Rats.
1: Pretty big rats. Feels structural. I've probably received more emails on the noises than anything else. Eddie Houchins emailed me from LA to ask if there could have been seismic activity. Now, before we dismiss this as a very Californian theory, It's worth noting that the following year, 1957, saw one of the largest earthquakes in the UK of the 20th century, albeit in Derbyshire, 150 miles away from Wycliffe Road. This might be a more promising lead, though. Several of you have written to tell me about the Heathwall River. So, apparently, the word Battersea has its roots in Anglo-Saxon words, meaning the island of Badrick. It was an island sandwiched between the Thames, London's main river, and another river, the heath wall. Most people now don't even know the heath wall exists because in 1866 it was encased and converted into a sewer. So one listener, Keith Moore, has been doing quite a bit of research on this, and his study of old maps puts the Heathwall sewer right under number 63. Could the noises have been coming from inside the sewer, Keith wonders? Another listener, Viv Brown, runs with this. She remembers how we discussed in our last case update about January 1956 having freakishly cold weather. Remember the pigeons in Trafalgar Square actually froze. Viv wonders if the noises could have been blocks of ice falling off inside the sewer. And Keith leaves us with one other creepy thought. He's learnt that the land boundary along this stretch of the river by Wycliffe Road was known back in the 10th century as Grendel's Mare. So if you read the medieval poem Beowulf, you'll know about Grendel, the monster that Beowulf must face. Keith asks if Donald could have been a modern day Grendel. To quote the poem, a creature of darkness, exiled from happiness and accursed of God, the destroyer and devourer of our humankind. I love all this stuff that you've been digging up. Nancy sent me an old newspaper article and the first line stopped me in my tracks. It describes the tragic death of a mother and son at 63 Wycliffe Road in 1920. The son's name is Donald. The only problem is, this 63 Wycliffe Road is not in Battersea. But Northampton, 75 miles north. Coincidences, they pepper this case like candles in the labyrinth. But do they lead us to answers or dead ends? Another subject, absolutely loads of you have asked about, is the key. Catherine Georgiou asks if anyone ever found what the key opened. The answer is no, it disappeared. And I've had a few messages wondering if that was part of a pattern. Did any other objects appear or disappear? And the answer is yes. Various strange items did appear in number 63 over the years. And I want to tell you now about one of the oddest This is a Saturday in 1958. Shirley is 17.
2: I'd been let out with my friend Marjorie and we walked along Lavender Hill looking in the jewellers like all giggly little girls. And we're saying, oh, one day, you know, perhaps we'll have a necklace like that. It was a diamond choker. Oh, and it was beautiful, and it all sparkled in the window. I said, oh, I'd love that. And then we moved on and went to look in another shop. When I got back near lunchtime, Dad was waiting for me, and he said, what's this? And he had that necklace. It was on the table. Well my eyes I said I was only looking at that with Marjorie and dad said have you put this here Donald so he said come on don't take your coat off can you remember the jeweler we're taking it back and when we got in there the jeweler was going to pick up the phone and phone the police that's disappeared out my window There was no way he could be convinced. But he did admit that he saw two little girls looking in the window. And I said, we never came into your shop. So he said, no. But how did you get this necklace? And, oh, dear, it took a lot of chatting by my dad to convince him not to contact the police. And the jeweller took it and he said, get out of my shop. And we did. Dad was shaking and I felt like crying.
1: Shirley, people who don't believe in ghosts are going to jump to one conclusion. They're going to say that you stole that necklace.
2: Yes, yes, but I didn't because we never went in the shop. And after that, Dad said, for God's sake, if you go out again, don't say you like anything. Don't say you want anything.
1: I'm joined by our expert, Evelyn Hollow. Evelyn, good to have you back. This is another deeply strange story, isn't it? But that idea of objects appearing and disappearing,
3: it's something that's been reported in other poltergeist cases. It is. So one of the stages of a poltergeist case is apports and disapports. So by that we just mean that an apple is the alleged paranormal transference of an object from one place to another, or for an object to appear seemingly out of thin air, out of nowhere, and then disappear is the same bit in reverse. So something that disappears suddenly into the void, basically. In the case of Thirty East Drive, which we talked about in a previous episode that you went to, it was the domino that seemed to appear, and in that corner, this object just materialised in thin air, popped into existence, bounced
4: off the window like that, and then landed on the floor. And I looked down and it was a domino.
3: So probably one of the cases that had a large number of apports and disapports was the Alma Fielding case. So in uh, London in 1938, Alma Fielding, who was quite an ordinary working-class woman, she began to experience lots of odd supernatural events at her home. And uh, Nando Fodor, who was a Jewish-Hungarian refugee, and he was also basically the chief ghost hunter for the International Institute of Psychical Research, went to investigate. He's her Harold Chibbet, if you like. And all these strange things started happening, sort of classic poltergeist escalation. But one of the most odd features of her case was this constant appearance and disappearance of objects, which included jewellery, beetles coming out of gloves, a live terrapin appearing in a car, and on further investigation by Fodor under more scientific conditions, which included having her strip searched, she had x-rays, she was stitched into a bodysuit, things like that, they basically found that she was a talented performance artist who was able to hide objects in various body cavities and then seemingly produce them from nowhere.
1: So that was a clear case of fraud, and some people will be wondering if Shirley did somehow steal this necklace. Remember, this is not the first time Shirley's been accused of theft. Think of that incident in the alterations room at Selfridges where the scissors went missing and Shirley was fired.
2: I'd been there, I don't know how long, when the scissors started to disappear. There was about a dozen women in the workroom, and they would call out, my scissors are gone, who's had my scissors?
1: This is a horrible question to have to ask, but is Shirley the kleptomaniac using Donald as cover? If only we had a witness. So I received an email. Now, we've had quite a few emails over the last couple of months, and it's taken me a while to work through them all. This one came about a month ago, and it's just been sitting there. It begins, Hello Danny, my name is Steve Clarkson and I've been following the Battersea Poltergeist but viewed things with some scepticism. And then the next line, it it blew me away. Steve, when I read your email, I actually said wow out loud. Did you? Maybe you should tell people why you got in touch.
0: My wife and I have been followers of the Battersea Poltergeist and... When Shirley mentioned that she worked at Selfridges I did some mathematics and thought well this must have been the same sort of time as when my sister Margaret worked there and she worked there from the mid-50s up until the late 50s in the dressmaking and alterations department. I contacted Margaret and asked her whether she remembered Shirley Hitching and she had no recollection at all and I said well, we've been listening to a podcast and it was uh, about an incident when scissors went missing and it was it was like click. She immediately had all of the memories flooding back to her. And although during that time she never once recalled Shirley's name at all, but she did remember all of the incidents.
5: What's going on? She's possessed, miss. Shirley Hitching, stop this. It's not me, miss. It's a ghost boyfriend. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> You're scaring everyone. I'm sorry, I can't control it. God, please stop it. Leave
0: me alone. She said it started off very slowly with machine, sewing machine bobbins. They moved a few inches or they moved a couple of feet across the um, workshop counter and then they started flying through the air. And that was obviously quite disturbing. She actually saw this? I did ask her and I said, this wasn't someone, you know, having a laugh, picking them up, throwing them around. And she said, no, I absolutely saw it. It would come, well, picture a sewing machine. There's on top, there's like a spike where the bobbing goes on and it would lift off, unspin the cotton and fly across the room. Did Margaret also remember the scissors disappearing? Yeah. And they weren't just disappearing, according to Margaret. They were flying about as well. She said it was very dangerous and quite frightening. She saw maybe two or three of the scissors flying across the room. And they would either fall before they hit the wall or on occasions they would hit the wall. Now, she witnessed that. She says it must have been four times, something like that.
1: Steve, this is just incredible. I feel like we should say why Margaret isn't telling us this story.
0: Yeah, the reason I'm having the conversation with you, Danny, is that uh, about um, seven or eight months ago, my sister suffered a stroke. It's affected her throat. And that's why she's asked me to express this to you. She spoke to me at length. So it's almost a verbatim report on her
1: behalf. Well, I really I wish her well. And I'm really grateful to you for talking to me.
0: When my sister was telling me, I, I actually felt quite sorry for Shirley because she was dismissed or released or whatever through no fault
1: of her own. It's an amazing story. And yes, I know we're not hearing it from Margaret directly, but fundamentally, why would she lie to Steve about a podcast that she'd never even heard? It feels like another potential game changer. If Shirley's telling the truth about Selfridges, is she also telling the truth about the jewellers' shop? Do we dare to entertain the idea that a necklace really could appear from nowhere? I said at the start of this series that it's not just about one family story. It gets to the heart of that enormous question, do ghosts exist? And I know that for some of you, it has changed your view on that subject. So I want to talk now to two people who very definitely didn't believe in ghosts to see what they have made of it. We have our expert psychologist, Kieran O'Keefe, and Deborah Hyde, a writer and former editor of The Skeptic magazine. Deborah, first, I know that you've been listening. Has Shirley's story converted you?
6: No, absolutely not. I've loved the series. I think a lot of sceptics probably have. But I don't see anything in this case which makes it unusual from all of the other cases where really there are more logical explanations for what's been going on than there being a poltergeist.
1: So you're not swayed by the uh, accounts of the noises or objects moving?
6: Something that really interests me is that with all the things that happened, and there were so many destructive, awful things that happened... The only thing that didn't get damaged was the TV. It was quite a prestigious thing to have, and it was hugely enjoyable. Donald destroyed so many things, he never touched that TV. Did Shirley like it too?
1: Kieran, I've been bombarded with emails about moments where people feel there's just no way a person could have faked this. Number one on that list would be the so-called levitation. It was like she was hovering floating, maybe six inches over the bed. The whole family seem to witness Shirley floating above the bed. How can we explain that sceptically? From
4: my perspective, what might be going on is that Shirley might be having a seizure. There are various points that highlight that might be the case. So, for example, they talk about her being very rigid. Wally reports her arching her back. One possibility that it could be is a psychogenic, non-epileptic seizure. They can be caused by a manifestation of psychological distress or even extreme personal dilemmas. With Shirley, of course, there's been a significant amount of trauma even at this very early stage. So it's quite possible that she has this psychological reaction to an extreme scenario, but she just has it once. That is perfectly possible. In effect, a seizure of this sort is the body's way of expressing what the mind and mouth cannot. Imagine this teenage girl screaming inside her, but not able to manifest that scream. The scream, therefore, becomes manifested in a seizure.
1: Fascinating. It keeps coming back to that, how we interpret things. Deborah, we've compared our case to the Enfield poltergeist in the 1970s. They both featured alleged levitation. I know you've written about Enfield. Do you see similarities?
6: I see loads of similarities. I see that there are avuncular men coming in who give young, distressed girls a great deal of attention. I see the ramping up of the story based on a script which is in part provided by the investigator stroke Uncle Role.
5: Poltergeists follow a pattern. Noises, then objects moving. The next stage is communication. He's made contact, hasn't he?
6: Yes. I see the need for that investigator to make his mark with his career via the activities of these alleged poltergeists.
5: Wally, I I, I, I will leave if you want me to, but let me warn you,
1: Donald won't. So you actually think that Chib had a negative impact on Shirley?
6: I think Chib very, very clearly had his own needs. The desire to try and establish life after death was quite strong. In addition, we get the idea that Chib wanted to be a celebrity. This was his life's work.
1: We've been amazed at how this case lasts 12 years. You feel the reason for that is Chib?
6: Oh, I absolutely do, yes. I suspect that the reason this case really had momentum was because Chib wouldn't go away.
1: Kieran, the other big incident that I know has convinced many people is the night that Joyce Lewis, the journalist, stays over, because here's an independent witness also experiencing phenomena. A simple explanation would be it's a poltergeist.
4: A more complex explanation would be to look at all of the possible natural explanations going on. At some point, the bedsheet appears to be pulled.
5: The sheets! That's a favourite of his. He always pulls them off. Maybe he likes to see girls in their pyjamas.
4: We know that fear, as well as being a powerful influence on all of our other senses, can actually have an influence on our tactile sensation. So even just turning slightly in a bed and the bed sheet kind of moving across your body could be interpreted as it being pulled. We've got an icy draught.
6: it's icy cold. Is the window open?
4: Now an icy draught could be down to the adrenaline, it could be the fear. We talk about Shirley being pulled off the bed, which sounds like a huge physical phenomenon that's occurring and cannot be misinterpreted. No!
6: I
7: pull frantically, but the force pulling her is too powerful for me. Donald!
5: Let her go!
4: But... In the context of all of this other phenomena and all of the fear and suggestion that's going on in that particular room, would it be a huge leap to say that at some point Shirley either physically moves out of bed or she almost falls out of bed and then Joyce interacts and they both create this narrative that she is being pulled out of bed. So I struggle to give you a really simple answer because I don't think there is a simple answer. I think it's a complex interplay of a lot of psychology and maybe one or two environmental aspects.
1: Deborah, from your point of view, who or what is Donald?
6: I think that Donald is a story with many authors and he's been created communally, both consciously and unconsciously according to a script that's readily available to everybody in that culture. The thing about the early to mid part of the 20th century is that it was absolutely awash with this stuff, not least because of the work of Harry Price. and Harry Price was a paranormal investigator and writer. If he was alive today, he would undoubtedly be presenting Most Haunted or something like that. He produced a book called Poltergeist Over England. It became very famous at the time. It was just part of the zeitgeist.
1: Is there something in Deborah's idea about the power of suggestion? Could the Hitchings family have been inspired, consciously or unconsciously, to invent Donald? Well, if they were, it's possible the inspiration lies only a few streets away, because Donald is not the only Battersea poltergeist. And again, Joyce Lewis plays a role here. Alongside her article about her night with Donald was a companion piece with a strange footnote to our case.
7: The other Battersea poltergeist. Strangest feature of the case is that only a few hundred yards from the Hitchens' home, one of the most violent poltergeist hauntings in history took place 28 years ago. And the poltergeist which terrorised a household in Elland Road, Battersea, in 1928, has much in common with Shirley's Donald. The 1928 ghost was said to be a fire raiser.
1: At the bottom of the article there's a quote from Ethel.
5: I remember it well. I lived nearby at the time.
1: If you want to get a sense of just how close Ellen Road is to Wycliffe Road, have a listen to this clip from our very first day of recording. Just walking up Lavender Hill, which is now a really busy road running through South London. Uh, And uh, I'm just trying to find Wycliffe Road. So here we go, we've got Elland Road and uh, a bit further down. It should be the next two or three down, I think. So I unwittingly walked past it. It's about ten minutes' walk from the Hitchings House. And guess who investigated the 1928 case? Harry Price. It features in that book that Deborah mentioned, Poltergeist Over England. Oh, and there's one other similarity between the two cases. The Elland Road Poltergeist wrote letters. Frederick Robinson, one of the residents of the house, said, I recall one night after an unusually loud series of wrappings, seeing a message on a slip of paper come down from nowhere to fall upon my bed. Upon elucidation, I read this. I am having a bad time here. I cannot rest. I was born during the reign of William the Conqueror. Of course, there's another way to look at this, to flip it from scepticism to belief. We talk about looking for a criminal's M.O., the unique fingerprint of their crimes. Was this Donald, nearly 30 years earlier and a few streets away, sharpening his teeth on some other victims? I guess this brings us on to that massive hot potato, the letters... And I can see that this is a subject that you are so, so split on. We heard the findings of our handwriting expert in episode eight, but you'll remember I said it's not quite as straightforward as it seems. There's a lot of strange information in the letters. To tell us more, step forward another new witness, Les Beckett. Now, Les hadn't even listened to the series when he emailed me. He just happened to read about it. In a newspaper,
8: and as I started reading it, I thought, uh, "Oh gosh, you know this sounds rather familiar." Then, as soon as I got to the name Chib Chibbert, I thought, golly, we're talking 61 years ago, when I first met Chib in City Seven Tax Office." What would you
5: be paying me for, to sit in your kitchen chatting to a ghost? <laughs> Try climbing that from the tax office, no. <laughs> No, I I fit this
1: around my day job. Where's that? The tax office. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to sound like flattery, Les, but you don't look old enough to have been working with Chip sixty-one years ago.
8: Okay, it's very welcome flattery, I must say. I was eighteen December last December, so I was just nineteen when I started in City Seven Tax Office. What are your memories of Chip? I used to see him obviously every day, and. Have these regular updates about his researches into the Battersea poltergeist. He'd get himself comfortably installed with his pipe to, uh, to relate his latest experiences. Lots of people your age, you won't even remember when people smoked in offices, but I mean, it was like a, a thug hanging over the room. How obsessed with the case was he? Yes, well, I'd say pretty totally. Going to the library, looking at Places in France, getting the addresses and then writing to them.
5: I'll, I'll try to verify if these are genuine names, but this could be it, surely. We're finally getting somewhere.
8: You do it the click on the internet now, but in those days, it was reference books, addresses, writing, just hard slog. He was spending a huge part of his life on it.
1: So when you wrote to me, Les, you said there were certain things Chip shared with you that felt very strange and hard to explain.
8: So among the writings which Donald left, one of them included this information about this secret bodyguard, not musketeers, but you know, a little group of that nature, which was the sort of inner secret bodyguard of uh, Louis XVI, which no one else knew about. They weren't in regimental records. It was like a sort of MI6 group, if you like, surrounding the monarch. Chib did dig into that, and it turned out to be true, and the people who did the research for him at the French end were quite surprised. It was only by doing research, following Donald Cum Chib's guidelines, that they actually discovered that information. So that was certainly not something made up by a 15-year-old girl in Battersea.
1: And you said there was one other thing about where some of the French exiles had escaped.
8: He gave the name of the country house where the emigres used to meet up and he was destined to go to that place. Now, I mean, surely he couldn't have known that with the best one in the world.
1: One theory on the Battersea Poltergeist that came up during the series was something that, I would never in a million years have seen coming. There were some people who were utterly convinced that I was making the entire thing up, that Shirley was an actress, and that I had somehow planted fake information across the internet. The example that they cited to back up this theory was Ghostwatch. Now, if you're British and of a certain age, Ghostwatch will be branded on your memory, but if you don't know it, it was a BBC programme back in 1992... That purported to be a live documentary broadcast from a house with an active poltergeist, but it was in fact a drama written by Stephen Volk that fooled the nation.
8: So welcome, live this Halloween night, to the first ever TV Ghost Watch. That's the scene in uh, Foxhill Drive in Northolt. Our outside broadcast units are there. That's the house where it might all happen tonight, or it might not. We shall see. After that, you can share with us your own supernatural experience on our very own Halloween Witchboard. I mean Switchboard. Over to you, Smithy.
1: I think there were a million people who called in believing it was real. It was one of the greatest ghost hoaxes of the 20th century. I'm joined now by one of its stars, the presenter Sarah Green, who, in a lovely, for me, ironic twist, is an avid listener of Battersea Poltergeist.
9: I talked about this to everyone. You know, I I really did. I became a Battersea Poltergeist bore with people. Have (laughs) you been listening? You have to hear this.
1: I was really chuffed that people were mentioning Battersea Poltergeist and Ghostwatch in the same breath. Are you surprised by the enduring power of Ghostwatch?
9: It's extraordinary. I think as the different anniversaries crop up, it sweeps people up in its path. I mean, we're about to move into an area where people who, who are swept up in it every Halloween night were born when it was, uh, it was recorded.
1: When we came to do those live listen-alongs at the end of the series... A lot of people were comparing the two, Ghostwatch and Battersea Poltergeist, and I guess there are parallels. You know, Ghostwatch took place in an ordinary house on a London street, but Ghostwatch was fictional, and yet, actually, there were a lot of people who just refused to believe that Battersea Poltergeist was real.
9: I mean, the counterpoint to that is that people still refuse to believe that Ghostwatch wasn't real. They want to believe that it happened, There are people who still go through and and cannot, they cannot accept that this was a carefully written, directed and shot piece of drama.
1: I was receiving emails from people who were convinced that Shirley was an actress and that this was all a hoax. And I guess it speaks to the heart of that debate. Uh, There are some people who want to believe and some people who will never.
9: Have you had experiences of your own?
1: No, I haven't, but you have had an experience, haven't you?
9: So, where it said in the script, Sarah describes a spooky experience that she had, the director, Leslie Manning, said, well, look, you can improvise easily. And I, I recounted this story that had happened when we were staying over with some friends of ours and I'd had the most extraordinary dream and the dream involved the faces of these beautiful indian girls who were doing the indian dance moves with their their heads and their necks going from side to side their wrists and their hands moving very beautifully and then as they were doing this the music that was playing was not the music that would have been heard normally to that type of dancing it was a harpsichord a very simple tune that was either on a spinet or a harpsichord. And it was this beautiful tune that was in my head. When I woke up, the couple came in with cups of tea in the morning and sat on the bed, and we were just talking as we, as we all normally would. And uh, I said, I've got to tell you about this extraordinary dream I had. It's two beautiful Indian girls, and this music, and their eyes, and the chap in the couple that we'd gone to stay with, he just left the room. And his wife, she just smiled. I said, what have I said? What have I done? Have I said something wrong? And she said, well, you're not the only one to have had that very same dream. I said, well, well, why would that be? And she said, all right, I don't know if you know, but the house that we're we're in had belonged to the Viceroy of India. And he kept two Indian concubines in this house. And in fact, they're buried in the garden.
1: Wow, has that experience had a really big impact on you and changed the way that you feel about this subject?
9: I'm open to all suggestions. I feel the presence of my parents, who are both no longer with us on this planet, but I feel their presences very strongly. And people who are sceptical would say, well, that's wish fulfilment on your part. Well, if it is, so be it. But that's not a bad thing. But I think it's more than that.
1: I do. It was really interesting talking to Sarah... I'm always struck by that life-changing power of the experience. Once you believe you've seen a ghost, it forever alters the way that you see the world. On that note, we're going to hear from someone now directly connected to our case. Someone who experienced something that changed them forever. Our final new witness. And bloody hell, he has got a story.
10: I'm Shirley's cousin. My name is William Selfridge.
1: So William goes by the name Bill. He's a former bank clerk with a white beard and glasses. He's 89 now, which means he would have been in his early 20s back in 1956. Bill, am I right in thinking that Shirley's Aunt Nell was your mum? Yes. If you remember that moment in the last case update where a friend of John's stayed the night at number 63 and heard noises when Shirley wasn't there, well, that night... Shirley went to stay at Aunt Nell's and that's the night Bill is about to describe.
10: I can remember Shirley saying when I used to go down to Wycliffe Road that she had a, what do you call it, a poltergeist or something, causing problems. So my father said, I'll tell you what, Shirley, come up and stay with us for a little while and we'll see if he follows you. So we all went off down to uh, Wilberforce House where my mother and father lived and I lived. So she climbed in the bed with that suddenly the iron bedstead, you know, and under the bed there's springs and bars. And suddenly they started banging, you know, like metal against metal. What kind of noise was it? Well, it was a metal bed frame. As though someone got a spanner banging against the frame. Could Shirley have been doing it herself? Oh, no, no way. No, it was metal against metal. She was in the bed anyway, and she couldn't have made it. So next thing I know, she was laying in the bed under the covers, and then suddenly the covers started coming down from her chin down to the bottom of the bed. And I said, well, you're doing that with your feet, aren't you? She said, no, I'm not. So with that, that went around one side of the bed, and said, you get around that side, Bill. I'll stay this side. So we held on to the bed covers, and they started going down. It was so strong, we couldn't stop it. You know, the pulling was so strong, we had to just let go. Can you describe how it felt? Well, it was just false, you know, as though someone was pulling it harder than I was.
1: And you were presumably a fairly strong young man.
10: Yeah, well, my father's strong, my God, he's strong. So was I. But, uh, no, we couldn't stop it.
1: How did you feel at that moment, Bill? Frightened. This must have been such a strange experience. Is it something that you've thought a lot about over the years?
10: Yeah. I told my you know, friends and that about it. Said, oh, yes, carry on. But are I said, no, honestly, I've heard it. I looked under the bed. There was nothing under the bed. but I could still hear the banging. How
1: do you feel about it now, thinking about what happened to Shirley and her family and whether it was real?
10: Well, I, I believe it, and that's it. You know? I mean, I felt that pull on the bedclothes and I heard the banging underneath the bed.
1: So much of this case rests on whether we believe Shirley or not. Maybe now that burden is spread on a few more shoulders. Do you believe Margaret, who worked Selfridges and saw scissors fly across the room? Do you believe Bill, who tried to hold on to those sheets and couldn't? Is the impossible possible? Shirley, it's time for me to put some questions from listeners to you. Is that okay? Okay. Caroline Harry asks if making this series has had an effect on you. She says she's been on edge after every episode. What's it been like for you?
2: In the early days of us recording, I did have a couple of nasty nightmares, but. It was a feeling of getting it off my chest. And when we finished number eight, I thought, oh, now I can put it away again.
1: Donna Wilson wants to know if you were afraid of letting the media back into your life after the way that you were treated. It's a really interesting question because we saw how famous you got in your teens and now, aged 80, it's happened all over again.
2: I'm more famous now than I was there
1: What I think is really powerful this time, Shirley, is that you've been able to do it on your own terms. Back in 1956, you know, you were exploited in quite a dodgy way.
2: I've read them since and got really furious because knowing what today, you know, how you could sue people, there was nothing of that in those days. They could write what they like. And I was a child.
1: Several people, Shirley, have asked for a clearer picture of what happened in the later years of the haunting?
2: Uh, Up to 57, it probably was mayhem still. We used to, as Dad said, tread on eggshells in case we upset it because we'd get the frying pan thrown at us or something. When it quietened down, I think I must have been 1920s and... I went back to art school and he was still very active. Night times was okay. We weren't woken up, but during the day, if dad was getting dinner and he made a remark or something, Donald would tap and answer him. And he'd go in the other room and there'd be a message, you know, that he wanted something. But he was still there with us and active and we knew he was there. The creepiest thing was the piano would start playing itself and directly Dad went in there, opened the door, it stopped.
1: Emily McLean asks on Twitter if any part of you missed Donald when he had gone.
2: No, it's a big no. (laughs) No, I didn't at all. It was my mum that missed him. My dad and myself, we were just elated that it had come to an end. A bit like people today, when Covid comes to an end, they'll want to get on with their lives and put their back to it. And that's how I felt. I felt free for the first time.
1: Of course, we heard Kieran's theory, Shirley, regarding John in episode eight. Phil Ward wants to know what you thought of that.
2: Um, Kieran is a knowledgeable man. He's got his theories and he must have worked something out. But he's very wrong because it couldn't have been John. Only a few years into Donald, he up and left and emigrated, got married and emigrated to Australia. And Donald was carrying on. I'm sorry, Kieran, you were wrong. (laughs)
1: Mark Dewhurst wonders if John could have known about the French Revolution and the story of the Dauphin. He, this is a good one, he points out that the song Frère Jacques, when translated into English, is Brother John. Do you think that John had an interest in that part of history?
2: He had a good education. He went to grammar school and he went on to college and... Yes, he may well have known. He, he was up on history, geography, English.
1: Did he speak French?
2: I think so. I think he had a couple of languages. When Donald wrote some French words, you know, in the early days, he, he would have a look at it and question it all.
1: Dominic Smithers uh, wants to know what was your scariest experience?
2: I think the fires, when the spontaneous fires started, you know, you'd smell the smoke and go running all over the house to see where it was. And, of course, the bed, the bed was the... I think that was the worst, knowing that Dad was trying to put it out. And I could hear Dad calling out. And um, one of the fire... When the firemen came one sort of comforted me outside because I was hysterically crying. Me dad, you know, he's getting hurt in there. Make it stop. And I think that was the worst moment.
1: Colin Webster says, how did Shirley manage to date Derek when there was a poltergeist in her life?
2: Well, all my boyfriends that I, I had, there wasn't a lot. It was only about three or four. And one of them, he came in and sat at the table and he was a bit of a loud mouth and he was goading Donald at the table and he was saying, bring it on, Donald. Do your worst and stuff like that and there was a big bowl of nuts on the cupboard above him and these nuts went all over his head and he just got up and ran out and I never saw him again. (laughs) Um, It was some time after I met Derek and I said to Donald when I got him on his own, please don't ruin it because... I really, really like
1: Derek. Perhaps we should bring in Derek here. Uh, Derek, how did you feel marrying into Britain's biggest ghost story?
4: Well, at the time, of course, I didn't know it was the biggest ghost story and uh, I can't really remember how I was told or what I felt at the time. You'd think really that it would be one of those moments that um, would stick in my mind forever. But whatever it was, I fell in love with her and still do love her and I want the best for her all the time.
1: OK, finally, Shilly, a lot of people were very struck by your experience with the medium, Agnes, at the end of episode eight.
9: There's a little boy and when you cross this hall he's behind you. He's dressed in fancy dress, blue satin and lace and he's got red hair.
1: It sent a shiver down a lot of people's spines and some people have asked if you've had any further experiences with a medium and I know there's been just one, hasn't there? And this leads us on to something that you really want to talk about. Do you want to tell people this story?
2: About two years ago, my daughter had a medium come in with five of her friends. You know, you have a home sitting. And she said, would you like to come, Mum? And Derek said to me, before you go don't tell this woman who you are because, you know, she might be able to find out about you. So we all sat round in a circle and she did one of her friends and then she stopped and she said, I'm in a bit of a quandary. She said, I'm being bombarded and she pointed to me you know, it may have been an act but she said I've got a person here he's appearing as a little boy, he's ever so powerful very, very powerful so she said he's saying he's very, very sorry and he's pleased that you've had a good life so by then I'm in floods of tears (laughs) so I said Why did he come to me? Ask him why did I get him? So she asked him, and he said, tell her she's to look at the soil under the house in Battersea. And then she said, I've got to let him go, I've got to let him go. And she slumped in the chair. So I said, well, what did he mean by that? I don't know, she said, but look to the soil. So on the Monday, I emailed the Battersea Library and said, did they have maps of Battersea, Wycliffe Road? Have you got maps of what was there in the 17th century? She said, yes, we have. So the next week, Derek and I went up to the Battersea Library and they had all the maps laid out for us and she got an ordnance survey map, put it over this map of 1790 and bang on where Whitecliff Road stood, there was a farm called Pidot's Farm and they grew lavender, but the lavender was sent from Paris And the oil that they got from that went back to make perfume for the French royal family. I had my answer. As we were going out, the archivist asked me why I wanted all this. And I said to him about, you know, what had happened. She said, hang on, I'll look in... She went and looked in some drawers. But she said, I've got a file here. There was a house that was built in Clapham by the Count de Provence, who was Louis XVI's brother. They knew that the revolution was coming and he had this house built so he could get the royal family out. That house wasn't far from Pido's farm.
1: Ashley tells me this. I can see her eyes light up. I can see how important this is to her. We've had Kieran's theory and Evelyn's theory. This is Shirley's theory. And I can't tell you how much I would love for this to be true. Wouldn't it be amazing if after all this time, Chib, maligned and laughed at, was right and Donald really was the Dofan. It would make a great end to this story. I think it's time to talk again with the historian Deborah Cadbury, author of that book on the Dauphin, The Lost King of France. Deborah, you told us the heartbreaking story of what happened to the Dauphin, but is it possible he did escape and didn't die in that prison in Paris?
7: If you look in fiction, then you can see, you know, from Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities where there is a prisoner swap or the Scarlet Pimpernel stories. It looks as though it's so easy. It wasn't in reality. No royalist conspiracy plots to rescue the royal family ever even got close.
1: The romance of the idea that the Dauphin escaped is just that. In the year 2000, new information emerged that seemed to finally close this cold case.
7: When he died, there was an autopsy and the doctor stole the heart And this was traced by a French historian called Philippe Delorme. And about 20 years ago, it suddenly became possible to do mitochondrial DNA tests on older historical samples. And so what they did in the laboratory was they couldn't use Marie Antoinette's hair. They used hair from her sisters that had been carefully preserved in this little rosary. And this was lined up with a small extract from the heart which Philippe de Lorme had authenticated and was convinced that this really was the lost king of France. And, you know, there on the laboratory bench, the ghostly imprint of the mother and the ghostly imprint of the son, you know, they're reunited. And when the results were run, it was an exact match. So sadly, it does look as though the boy that died in the tower really is the true prince.
1: In a case so full of mystery and questions, at least this is one answer. I don't think it will change Shirley's belief. She has her explanation, and I understand why that's important to her. It gives all those years of chaos and trauma some meaning. Some people have been worried about you, Shirley, wondering if we have in any way brought Donald back. I know that you did have a strange experience the other day, didn't you, where you felt something, but not Donald.
2: The last time we recorded episode eight, it was about half past five. I went in, made some tea, and then at six, we liked to settle down for the television, watch the news. I smelt a really strong smell, and it was pipe smoke. (coughs)
5: Are you all right? That's just tired. Too many nights on the kitchen floor. Your parents insisted I graduate to the sofa.
2: I don't think I would have been frightened if it was old Chib, cos he was so lovely. I hope it was him and he approves of what we're doing, because it is his
5: work. I had such high hopes, Shirley. In my arrogance, I thought this case would make me famous. Now, I i feel not to find an answer would be the most terrible failure. You haven't failed. You saved our lives. I don't know where I'd be without you.
2: I've got a lovely photo here, Derek, found. It's Mr Chib and me in my wedding dress. I was sitting on his lap. Mum's written on the back, Shirley and Harold. He was so lovely, bless him.
1: It feels so weird to have recorded my last interview with Shirley. What she has told you over the last nine episodes is at times fantastical, frightening. The easiest thing to do is to say that she is lying or mistaken. But I don't think that I can do that.
5: That's the nature of the paranormal. Doubt and wonder. A two-pronged path. We must all choose our route.
1: I hope that this episode has given you some answers, but I hope it's also left you with some questions. Because I feel that this is a story that will run and run, and I hope that we'll still be talking about it for years to come. That's pretty much all we've got time for. I just want to finish with one last really interesting question from Lee Tomlinson. He asks, do we still see any poltergeist cases being reported in recent years? I've had other people ask this. Are poltergeists a historical phenomenon? Can a case like Battersea exist in the era of the smartphone? The implication, I guess, being that people think they are a hoax and the camera would catch them out. But what I would say is that the emails I've received for this series haven't been just questions and theories. I've also received a lot of ghost stories. There are still cases happening, many, many more than we might think, but people feel they can't talk about it. I think that is the difference, not better phones or recording equipment. It's that saying you've had a ghostly experience used to be socially acceptable. It was taken seriously, and now... People fear they will be judged, mocked and told that they're mad. So to all those people who did email me, I want to thank you for trusting me and sharing those stories. I remain fascinated to try and understand what is going on. And thank you to all of you for joining me on this journey. I will be back with a new case, a new investigation. So watch this space. This was a Baffle Gab production for BBC Radio 4. I've been Danny Robbins. Until we next meet, sleep well. Don't have nightmares.